financial health, wellness is a critical part of our overall being that has to be nurtured. I think the industry is perhaps becoming less focused on brick and mortar and the need to have a bank on every corner versus the ability to access digitally. Banking, it's about the relationship that you have at a financial institution that can participate in helping you construct solutions for your business. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, we have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of social impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Michael Pugh. Michael is the president and CEO of Carver Federal Savings Bank. Carver is a New York-based bank founded in 1948 to serve primarily black communities and today is the largest black-operated bank in the United States. Michael has previously held executive positions at financial institutions like Capital One and Citizens Bank. Welcome, Michael. It is great to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and to be with you guys today. Thank you for joining us to talk about your career and your company, your bank. I did want to start out by pointing out a statistic that that really stood out to me, which is the Federal Reserve estimated that there are 55 million unbanked or underbanked adult Americans. And that was in 2018. That number may have gone up, but it accounted at that time for 22% of U.S. households. That's a staggering figure. I would love to frankly start with your reaction to that, and then we can dive a little deeper into your career history. I think you're absolutely right, uh, Eva. It is a staggering number. And the unfortunate part is that for many of the underbanked and underbanked community, it's a generational problem that has happened. It's passed on throughout the family. We've made it our mission at Carver to really try and address that issue. And we've done it in a number of ways that we'll certainly talk about uh, today. I think the problem, it will be further exacerbated by the uh, divide that continues to happen within wealth uh, here in our nation. And it really is an issue for financial institutions as a whole, industry-wide, to think about how to invite those into the banking world, if you will, in a way that's non-threatening, non-intimidating. And to, to try and dissuade the use of check cashers or hard money lenders as a means to have access to financial services, because we know in many cases, those avenues can be ones that create more of a spiraling effect in terms of the wealth gap. So it is a real issue and one certainly one that isn't going to go away in the near future. So we must do something about it as, as an industry to stay on top of it. Why are there so many? Is it that the institutions aren't there to serve or is it 
the lack of just knowledge that they could really go into a bank or is it lack of money? I think it's a combination of all of those things. Ed. That's a really great question that you're asking. And frankly, you know, if you think about New York City as an example, there are many first and second generation Americans that are using check cashers or non-traditional banking services because that's what they saw growing up or it is uh, maybe they don't have all of the documentation to start a traditional bank account. Many start from a a point in place that the service fees within uh, your the, many of the typical banks could make a difference. If you're being charged, as an example, $10 a month just to have your account, and I'm just using that number as an example, that $10 a month, that's $120 a year. That could make the difference on you know how you feed your family if you're a person in a low income uh, situation. And so it's the ability to afford to bank at a place, having access to banking. There are many areas of this country, surprisingly enough, even still today, are banking deserts within major metropolitan cities. And so the, this would be places where, frankly, if you've got to catch a couple buses or or a significant travel just to get to a bank, but you've got a check cashier on the corner, you might choose that as an option. So in response to that, it, is that it really is a combination to all of those issues, uh, frankly, that are real and uh, have to be addressed. Thank you for unpacking that. Michael, it's clear that you have a passion for solving the issues that you just outlined. You have a background in banking services across the country. What drew you to Carver in 2012 when you joined the company? In order to answer that question, I have to give you a little bit of background in terms of family and and so on. I started my career as a part-time teller almost 30 years ago. The initial intent was, gee, it seemed like a great opportunity to interact with customers, interact with people while continuing on in my college education. I come from a family of healthcare providers. And so it was assumed that I would continue down that path. And actually the first job that one of the first jobs that I had while in college was training with physical therapists and becoming a certified physical therapist assistant. So as a PTA, I was doing that in geriatrics arena, which means basically I was in nursing homes working with a physical therapist. I took great pleasure in the ability to be able to help people in the nursing homes get range of motion, be able to help them, you know, stay active. The problem I had as a 19, 20 year old, and the biggest challenge was that in many cases, I'd go home and come back the next day and my patients had passed. Grappling with that, learning about the realities of life at 19, 20 years old was a bit intense. It's a quick way to make you grow up and, and, and the number, uh, but, but frankly, it, it was very intense. I was convinced at that point that I wanted to continue to do something that focused on helping people making a difference, but I didn't necessarily think that being in the healthcare sector was the right choice for me despite the wonderful examples in living. So when I started the career in banking, the first 20 years or so were at large financial institutions. Those institutions afforded me a wonderful opportunity to learn about various aspects of financial management and be a part of some 
outstanding programs and initiatives to ultimately help communities and colleagues. But coming to Carver has really been kind of the crown jewel, if you will, of my career opportunity. The reason why I say that is because after having spent 20 years in the large financial institutions, seeing so many few people that looked like me of color and not having the opportunities that I wanted to focus more on the customer and the community because the larger the institution, the more political, the more emphasis on shareholder return than relationships. So I knew I wanted to continue doing something that would make a difference, but I had to look for a different channel in terms of doing that. Being a part of Carver afforded me to do that. The beautiful thing about Carver here as I wrap up the response to this this question is you can see the direct impact of your efforts, your sweat equity in terms of how it changes lives and makes a difference. When you spend time sitting down with a small business entrepreneur and helping them think about their business plan, or you're thinking about a commercial credit structure because a nonprofit wants to buy a building in order to expand the work that they do in terms of impact in the community. And then you see those efforts come to fruition. That's why I wanted to be a banker. I wanted to be a part of helping others learn what I learned about the flow of money and then how to, how to leverage your savings, your capital, gaining access to capital in order to do things that effectively could change neighborhoods, communities, for the good, that is. That's you know how I got started in banking and certainly what led me up to this uh, amazing journey over the past eight years with Carver. And is Carver just in New York or is it all over the country? So we were founded in New York and uh, we're in Harlem, headquartered there. We are in nine states, including Washington, D.C., from a digital platform. Our branch locations, we have seven branches that are in Queens, Brooklyn, and Harlem, uh, which, of course, is part of Manhattan. But our digital reach, we've been very proud of that because we launched it in April of this year, we've seen an outstanding response of more than a thousand new customers that have joined the bank through our digital platform and over $5 million in new deposit relationships, which is significant for a community bank. I, I think it's also significant the fact that we've been able to launch this digital platform to reach nine states uh, and, and certainly do that at a time when in our uh, globally, uh, the pandemic has been front and center for all of us, but it's also caused us, many of us to think about, you know, how to access the services that we need in a more digital format. And so I guess in some way through all of what we're experiencing, this timing has been right and and worked out for us to be able to better serve the community. I love how you connect the role of yourself as a banker to the companies that you're helping think through maybe borrowing, but also think through their businesses and the impact that you're having. Um, that really, really resonated with me. So thank you for, for point, point, pointing it out that way. Yes, yes, thank you. Well, financial health is a key part of our overall wellness. And frankly, it is the part that in many cases doesn't get nurtured the same way. I think we all would agree that if you don't have some financial health and wellness in that regard and you don't have access to services, it does shape a number of the things that you are able to do 
for your family, for your life. The, this current pandemic has been a great example of how important financial health is to us all. You know, many small business entrepreneurs throughout this pandemic weren't quite sure how to survive and in fact, what they're going to do. Studies show that for African-American businesses, as an example, approximately 41% of them may be expected, small businesses expected to close and or have closed their doors as a result of this pandemic. That's just one group as an example, where you think about a high percentage of closures tied to the pandemic. And many small businesses, when the, our administration at the federal level issue stimulus programs, the small businesses weren't sure how to get access to them. The larger financial institutions were certainly overwhelmed with volume and calls. And I think what our many of our small businesses learned is that banking is more important than access to the branch that's on the corner. It's about the relationship that you have with someone at a financial institution that can participate in helping you construct solutions for your business. We were able to help many small businesses through uh, the Paycheck Protection Program with more than $35 million in access to capital provided to these small businesses. But the most important thing that we're very proud of is that we participated in the preservation of more than 3,500 jobs. And these are jobs that were saved because those small businesses were able to get access to capital. And in many cases, they didn't get that in the first round or tranche of that stimulus program. But when they got to us, and we were able to help them form a relationship with folks like myself and others on my team that could be decision makers to move the process along. It really did make a difference. And so we're very proud uh, about that kind of work and understanding that financial health and wellness is a critical part of our overall being that has to be nurtured. This is the meat of a subject with a bank is um, the question about relationships, because in many cases, you know, for some of the institutions, relationships would be in a sense discriminatory, right? Because if it was like back in the day, buddy system gave loans to their buddies, but didn't give loans to a, you know, another person in the community who for one reason or another didn't, didn't, you know, belong to the country club, you know, that some of those, you know, standards for taking the relationships out of banking and making it more about an analysis of cash flow and, you know, assets and so on. Maybe you could just shed a little light on how you train your people and how you lead from your position when that kind of paradox arises, which it must arise every day, or if not every, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really is a good question because, you know, the person on the front end, the banker, we, we often joke and say that they're the first to fall in love with the new relationship, the folks in my role have to ask the tough questions to balance mission with standard regulatory protocol and critical things uh, that must be considered for safety and soundness of a bank. And so you're, Ed, you're absolutely right. You know, it's the days of a handshake and uh, off we go with a check from the bank in your hand those are really gone. And I think our regulatory standards, banking is so heavily regulated. The 2007-2008 Great Recession 
I think reformed and changed a number of things. And to some degree, while those many of those changes have been very helpful because they've standardized a number of things, it has taken away a bit of the autonomy and the ability for banks, even community banks that are frankly local, hyper-local and really focused on the small business entrepreneur and the neighborhoods uh, that we serve. Those banks like us are probably a bit more challenged because the regulatory standards today demand that we have to kind of look at everything the same way. So once you've done that, though, once you've provided the training to say, gee, you know, as you're thinking about solutions for customers, you must meet this protocol. We take it a step further uh, through management loan committees to uh, or uh, our business review committees to look at critical things about the customer that we're going to be onboarding, like how many jobs will the small business add to the communities that we serve? What's the purpose of the small business? We spend time helping the small business entrepreneur think about their business plan and their strategy. And we know that if we don't do that kind of work, many of the large financial institutions just don't have the appetite. Right. And in some cases, they don't have the bandwidth because the sheer volume of customers that they're faced with every day, they may not spend that kind of time. But it certainly is the place in, where we spend the time to help further construct the story beyond the standard things that you must look at from kind of a regulatory protocol. And I, I'll share with you just one really brief example of a nonprofit organization in Brooklyn that we helped support. This organization did not bank with us. They've been around for over 100 years and we're having a significant amount of problem in terms of being able to get a loan to restructure their debt. They were asset rich, but cash poor. Their real estate was worth quite a bit of money, but they really had a liquidity and a cash flow issue. It took us six months working with them to help them restructure things like their retirement and pension programs. Now, of course, we don't we didn't do the work, but we're connecting them with other agencies. We're spending time looking at what their business plan is going to be and offering advice on, you know, how they may want to structure it in order to help meet the credit standards uh, uh, that are necessary for a bank. And when we did that, we were able to help that small, uh, that nonprofit organization restructure their debt, change the trajectory in terms of where they have been headed and uh, now be in a position to actually thrive in terms of their support to the community. That's an example, Ed, of investing that time. That's that's a, a new client relationship that really didn't come to fruition for six months. The larger financial institutions don't have the energy and time to spend on that, but we can do it because that nonprofit is an example of a conduit for important things in the communities we serve. And if they hadn't been cared for, they may not have been able to exist much longer. Yeah. And thank you for highlighting that example, because I think it's very powerful also to show the impact 
that you have. Um, so Carver is now the largest Black-owned bank in the U.S. It has been designated as what's known as a CDFI, a Community Development Finance Institution. Can you unpack CDFIs for us and how that might allow you to operate differently than traditional banks? So one distinction is that we're publicly traded. So we actually happen to be the largest Black-managed publicly traded financial institution. There are at least two other Black-owned banks that are a bit larger than us in size in terms of assets, but they're not public companies. So that's one distinction for us. On top of that, we are a community development institution, as you said. So as a CDFI, the CDFI is a designation that you can receive if you meet a certain criteria. And one of the most important criteria from the U.S. Treasury is that 60 cents or 60% of every dollar you have on deposit must be reinvested in the communities that you serve, particularly uh, communities may be low to moderate income in some way if there's an opportunity to systemically improve the financial health of those communities. Carver goes beyond that 60%. 80 cents of every dollar on deposit, approximately 80 cents of every dollar, is reinvested in the communities that we serve. We've spent time educating more than 15,000 people on the financial literacy and financial education side. And this has included workshops and various programs to help consumers think about first-time home buying, to help customers think about how to launch their small business or how to develop a budget and be able to save for, for the future. In addition to providing access to capital, you heard me talk about the Paycheck Protection Program, and more than $35 million in access to capital to small businesses. But I would also say one of the things we're very proud about this part of this whole CDFI mission and focus for us is our work with women and minority business entrepreneurs. And I would dare to say Carver is one of the premier banks in greater New York City for women and minority business entrepreneurs because there's no place else, no other financial institution that I can think of from knowing with my peers and friends in the industry, no place that will spend the amount of effort and time and energy to really figure out a solution for uh, small businesses for women and minority business entrepreneurs in order to help them thrive. And we have so many examples of how we've done that in a way that has just made a difference and changed the trajectory. Uh, But those are elements of being a community development financial institution with the biggest one being your reinvestment must be directly in the communities that you serve. Are you guys in Texas? So we're not in Texas yet, uh, Ed, but stay tuned. We, we might get there and you could open up an account with us anytime that you want because uh, our online portal would allow, would allow you to do so. <laughs> That's funny because I w- I've been looking for a CDFI or other sort of purpose-driven bank to shift into from for my business. And it's been hard um, to find one. I mean, there are definitely community-focused banks, but you know, they're a little bit more generic in the way they, they approach that. I don't think that they have the sort of focus on really changing communities for the better the way you guys do. I'd be happy to talk with you offline. There's a number of uh, CDFIs throughout the country. They all do just some amazing work. Uh, I uh, I uh, sit on the board for the Community Development Bankers Association and chair the membership committee. In fact, this week, 
is the C, uh, the Community Development Bankers Association Conference. And the reason I share that is because as part of this conference, you've got all of these CDFIs that are talking about mission and purpose and why it must be combined with banking. There's just been powerful stories of, you know, PPE equipment being issued by bankers to first responders and food banks or food drives in communities in response to the current pandemic and the rising financial challenges that so many are faced with. And so when you hear that kind of work being done at a national level with CDFIs, it makes you feel pretty proud to be not a typical bank, but really a bank that has like Carver that has figured out how to balance mission and margin because they, they really shouldn't be in direct competition with each other. I'm sure Eva has a couple of questions here teed up, but um, yeah, I, I find it to be a little bit rarer to see them CDFIs doing business banking. I was actually just going to jump in and say I can verify the same. Actually, Michael, we we also at Beyond Capital have had a, a tough time finding a more aligned bank, but we can, of course, take this conversation on the side and, and hopefully leverage your expertise. Before we get into rapid fire, I did want to talk about how you run the bank and the operations and how you maybe bring impact into your interactions with your employees or any company policies. Can you give us that inside view of your work? There's probably a couple of things that I'll highlight. You know, one is that I really do enjoy working in a consensus driven environment. I don't make critical business decisions about the institution and for the institution without including my senior team. I'm very proud about that effort and and approach because I've worked in large firms where there were talented people in the room afraid to speak up. They might've known important pieces of information that could have changed or impacted a business decision, but did not feel that they that they were empowered to be able to share those opinions. And in some cases, the failure to have access to that information, the person in the leadership role making the, the decision made the wrong decision, but with the best information that he or she had at that time. I've also worked in settings where diversity and inclusion weren't really embraced or welcomed, you know, to sit at a room, sit in a room with other peers and to hear your managing director of a, a particular business lie refer to another group of people as those people or any of the other things that you can imagine and then look over and realize, oh, gee, you know, Michael's in the room. <laughs> he might be one of those people. So I, so what I think has just been wonderful about the experience of being at Carver has been to Ensure that you have a, an environment where folks are empowered to speak up, disagree with you, and challenge thoughts so that we can make the very best decisions based on the combination of talent. And then second, diversity and inclusion being so important about our business uh, decisions. 100% of our board happens to be African-American, Caribbean-American uh, descent. But what I think is very powerful beyond that is that at least 30% of our board uh, happens to be women. And again, women of color for a public company, that's a really big deal because now you've 
you're talking about including leadership team with all different backgrounds and experiences uh, to be a part of decision making. For my management team, having a very diverse group of people that come from all different um, you know, backgrounds. I've had someone ask me once, if you work at a bank that was, is considered to be black owned or black managed, does it mean that it's all black people working there? And the answer is absolutely not. It's I have a very talented, diverse group of leaders from all different ethnic backgrounds and men and women that frankly, if they weren't there by my side every day, it would be much more difficult to do this job. I'll close out that point with just one other thing, which is we also have core values that we've doubled down on as part of how we engage and make decisions. And those values are trust, results, accountability, and community. And so in any decision that we're talking about making, we do the checkup, if you will. Are we trusting and aligning the decision with the very best choices that will uh, be favorable for shareholders in the community. You know, can we measure the impact of what we're doing? Who's going to own it? How will it make a difference again in our community? The check-in is so critical, and I think it is what is missing in some of the practices around diversity and inclusion. So thank you so much for bringing that up because it's a tangible point for all the purpose-driven leaders who are listening or aspiring purpose-driven leaders who are listening to integrate into their kind of leadership strategy. So let's get into our rapid fire. We are looking forward to getting to know you, Michael, better with these questions. The first question is, what book is on your nightstand right now? Oh, so that that's an interesting question. I would say the book that I've been reading and I'm just excited about it is The Warmth of Other Sons. The Warmth of Other Sons is a book by Isabel Wilkerson, and it talks about the great migration, African-Americans uh, from the South primarily to other parts of, of the country, and how this migration has, in fact, changed and shaped so many cultural paradigms that we know about today from music, arts, culture, science, etc. So it's a wonderful book. It's a big book. <laughs> I'm slowly making it through it. Is it nonfiction? So no, the, the, actually Isabel Wilkerson is a Pulitzer Prize winner. And this book captures some real stories and experiences of people in there as well. I've always wondered about that. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for bringing, up, bringing her up as well, because as you know, cast her more recent book is being widely discussed and uh, it is in my audible at the moment. So I'll be getting to that yes. very, very shortly. This is my question. So what is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine free? Um, so I do two things, uh, a glass of water before my <laughs> coffee, and then I have my coffee, uh, I try to limit it to no more than two cups. Oh my God. I have a glass of water before my coffee too. <laughs> Me too. I, I read somewhere a while back that it's actually a good practice as the first part of your day to jumpstart your metabolism. <laughs> I, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Name something that's giving you hope right now. Something that's giving me hope right now. One of the biggest things that perhaps is giving me hope is the response in terms of what I'm seeing a number of large companies 
respond to the social justice and uh, diversity and inclusion efforts. You know, I've talked about this with a number of folks and I've said, you know, gee, my my most fervent hope is that this is not something that will be ephemeral, that will go away because, uh, gee, it's the hot topic of uh, today and possibly tomorrow, but next week we'll be on to something else. And so far it hasn't. Companies seem to be doubling down on, and, and, and I think investors and certainly boards are uh, doubling down on the focus of diversity and inclusion and equality. What we often know is that talent is equally distributed in this universe. We, you know, we all have some form of talent and uh, just the ability to see or do something, I think, in a very creative way. But opportunity isn't necessarily evenly distributed. And so there are many, many talented people that don't necessarily get opportunity because they haven't had access and uh, exposure to the right folks in order to be discovered and given a chance. And what I love about what's happening today that's really given me hope is to see so many companies say, in order for us to thrive as a great nation on a go-forward basis, we must engage the talent and we must create opportunities for many, many people and people that are different. They can't all look and think the same in, in the room. What is a key trend that you're watching in the banking industry right now? I would say we're certainly looking at what's happening with the state of small businesses and the impact of uh, the pandemic. We expect that there's going to be more aftershock, if you will, from this pandemic with small businesses. I had to be downtown earlier today for a meeting, and I was just surprised at the number of small businesses that are closed, even in downtown New York, where you know it's a place that has a pulse and it's a never ending energy, but to see businesses that have been closed. And so we're continuing to pay attention to that trend and think about how do we help support businesses, especially as many of them will need to migrate to a digital and e-commerce world. What is one piece of advice you would give to your 20-year-old self? There's two things. A great friend of mine once said to me, you can have everything that you've always wanted, just not all at the same time. And so as I've had the wonderful privilege of this life and journey that I'm on, I think one of the key things that I've looked back and said, gee, you know, it's important to have a balance spiritually, mentally, physically, to continue to care for yourself in so many different ways to ensure that you are your best self at all times for your family. Oftentimes we put a lot of emphasis, of course, on our professional lives and we take care of our families and then, you know, we, you know, kind of fall to the wayside with some of those other things that we have to do to continue to make sure that we stay healthy, whole and competent as individuals. Over the years, I've learned the importance of that. And if I were talking to my 20 year old self, as I've talked to my family members, I, I think that's one of the key things is Make sure that you continue to balance and take care of yourself. And the second thing that I would just add there really quick is the importance of saving. I remember being a 20-year-old and having an important banker uh, role model say to me, you need to make sure you're participating in your 401k and saving for your future. And 
it will make a difference. And I read an interesting statistic that said about 50% of the United States of, of adults uh, in this country are not participating in retirement plans or stock market. And so if that statistic is true, certainly starting at 20 would be a lesson learned and an opportunity for all of us to think about uh, in order to build a more sound financial future. (laughs) Just to wrap up, and and thank you for your personal responses. You know, you're a publicly traded bank. You're seeing the impact that you're having. Where do you see Carver in the next 10 to 15 years? Carver will continue to grow. I am extremely confident about that. And and we will continue to be one of the leading banks nationally that helps to support women entrepreneurs. We know that women entrepreneurs have been one of the fastest growing segments in our country and they need help. They need support from a bank that cares in order to help them shape and form their businesses. Uh, And certainly minority entrepreneurs, we will continue to have a laser focus on that. I think digital reach and our ability to have a platform that allows us to reach customers in other states, including Texas, so that we can make sure we're taking care of you, Eva, and uh, take care of you, Ed, wherever you're traveling. Those are the things that will be important because I think the industry is perhaps becoming less focused on brick and mortar and the need to have a bank on every corner versus the ability to access digitally. So 10 years from now, when we look back on this, you will, I think you'll feel a sense of pride as I will that uh, we've continued to thrive and support the community and grow uh, to do it at a much larger scale. Cool. Thank you so much for everything that you shared with us today. We could certainly have a whole other podcast in kind of going deeper. This has been an incredible interview and I know that both of us have really enjoyed getting to know you and Carver better. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you both for your time today. Thanks, Michael. It's been really great. I've enjoyed the conversation a lot. Have a great day. Bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.